Well, this morning we are in the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, by the way, if you're following along, uh, either in the room or online, we do have an outline of our messages up every Sunday. Um, and this Sunday is no different. If you go to the Pilgrim Church um, uh, .ca forward slash live uh, web page, you can find the notes for this Sunday and follow along and take notes. Uh, I find that's the best way that I get the most out of the message. Uh, like Andrea's sermon last Sunday, I was taking notes all along. I had to leave for the last little bit to skadoosh on over to another church, um, and then I came back and listened and finished out my notes as well. So I just want to encourage you to do that. Uh, before we get into the message today as well, I have one other thing I want to highlight, the Christmas Eve gathering. Um, so we are gathering live online at 5.30 p.m. for our Christmas Eve service, and we're going to do a traditional lessons and carols service out of the Book of Common Prayer, and if you're new to that service, it involves uh, a, a list of scripture readings from the Old Testament into the birth of Jesus, uh, nine separate little short readings, along with carols and special music interwoven between the readings. Um, we don't do a big teaching during that time, but we sing the songs, we enjoy the uh, candlelight, and I encourage you to join us during that time. Invite your neighbors, use a Facebook invite or uh, Instagram invite. They will be uh, something you can repost up here, I'm sure, later today or tomorrow for our service. Uh, and so share that. Let people know and invite them to the Pilgrim Church uh, gathering. Now, I should also add that we are joining with a, our sister congregation, Emmanuel Baptist, will be joining us and be part of that service as well. So Emmanuel Baptist and Pilgrim Church will be doing live Christmas Eve via live stream. Uh, some of the readings will be pre-recorded because we can't get everybody, obviously, in the room since the limit is 10 uh, for volunteers and staff, uh, but we're going to put that together and it's going to be a great time. One other thing I would add to that as well uh, is that uh, if you have candles or you want to dim the lights and you want to do normally in our, our service by the end of the night, we kill all the lights and we share light from the, the center pillar candle, the Christ candle, and everyone has a candle and we hold it up and sing and it's just sort of this really fun, warm environment. So I want to encourage you at home, have your candles ready, be ready to go. I mean, be fire safe, don't set anyone on fire, but be ready to go uh, as we uh, use that as part of our worship gathering online Christmas Eve, 5.30 p.m. on the 24th. Please join us and spread the word. Thank you. Okay, that was my Christmas Eve commercial. I think I, think I nailed it. All right. <laughs> um, so this, this morning, we're doing two words from Scott Erickson's book, Honest Advent. And these words were picked by Josh Song, one of our church uh, adherents here, one of our members, attenders here, and he is also speaking at our sister congregation this morning. Um, and so Josh picked these words, and some of our students uh, who are here, part of our church, have been doing some pulpit supply and all that, and so we have been planning this series together, and they have picked sort of the theme for each week. Uh, and so whether they're here or they're at another church, uh, we're sharing the same words or the same core theme here this Sunday. So the words that Josh picked... Uh, we're from uh, chapters 9 and 23 coming up this week in the readings, the final readings leading to Christmas uh, in Scott Erickson's book. He has 25 chapters or 25 devotional readings for Advent. And so chapter 19, the word is room, and chapters 23, the word is attention. Uh, room and attention. The two passages from Scripture that are focused on in these words come from Luke chapter 2, and Matthew chapter 2, which are part of the birth and infancy narratives or the, the, the true stories of Jesus' birth and first few years. So we're going to read those passages and we're really going to spend more attention in our service today on the word attention. 
So let's read these passages, and then we're going to jump into it this morning, because this is one of my favorite parts of the Christmas story, and I'm going to geek out on it, and it's going to be glorious, and I'll go up in flames, and then we'll be done. So let's dig into this today, all right? So join with me this morning. We're going to read from Luke chapter 2, uh, just two short verses there, uh, and it's, the context is Mary and Joseph have arrived, uh, and, and they are waiting to give birth Uh, to the baby. Uh, Mary's waiting to give birth, and it says this, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them, because there was no guest room available for them. And the other passage we're going to read, and we'll read through it actually once now, and we'll talk about it in a little more detail in a moment, is from uh, Matthew chapter 2. And I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the passage that Josh is also uh, speaking and teaching on today. And so, hear these words this morning. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is the one who is born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod, who was the local ruler of Judea, the ancient part of Israel where Jesus was born, when King Herod heard this, he was alarmed and all Jerusalem with him. And after assembling all the chief priests and experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. They answered, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written this way by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, verse 7, privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, look carefully for the child. And when you find him, inform me so that I can go and worship him as well. After listening to the king, they left. And once again, the star they saw when it rose led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. And as they came into the house and saw the child with Mary and his mother, they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure boxes And gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks to you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we dig into this last Sunday before Christmas Eve and the annual celebration of your birthday, your coming, your advent, your first advent, I pray that you would work through your Holy Spirit, who is present now in the church and in the world at work. And Lord, I can't change anyone's heart. I am a saint and sinner in process. I am justified and sinner at the same time. I am experiencing your holiness and also the tension of the war within every human heart, including my own. 
I know at best I may be able to give a persuasive speech on a good day. But Lord, I know this about your spirit. That when your spirit takes the word and the foolishness of preaching, you can grab a hold of people and bring about an awakening and awareness and even a next step in their spiritual journey. So God, we yield all of this time as we have already in worship and in prayer and the things that make up the local church, the body of Christ, and the, and the discussions that have happened. But Lord, I pray that you would take this preaching and you would do what only you can do. We yield to you. I yield to you as your servant. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So two words this morning, room, and we'll just spend a minute on room, and then we're going to get to attention, because that's where I want to pay more attention. Room. When they were there, there came for time, and there was no room available in the end. Scott Erickson reminds us that the Greek word that's used here refers more to a guest room than a hotel room. And when we think about the first coming of Jesus, it's interesting that the way he came into the world didn't please everyone. Because clearly this idea of room was finding hospitality amongst your own people or even your family, and the family wouldn't make room for him. And they couldn't find a room, and so they're put in the place of the household where the animals are, possibly a cave or a lower level of a home, but they were not welcome into the guest room. There was no room found. Now, I don't know about you, but if one of your family members shows up traveling and they're pregnant and they're about to give birth, I think most of us would figure out a way to make room in the house, but there was no room for them to be found. I think this is interesting because it says so much about how Jesus was not received by those that should have received him. And we're getting clues here already in the telling of the story in the Gospel of Luke that those that should be most receptive to Christ often aren't. Those that have heard the stories and when God's presence comes near often harden their hearts and they do not make room. And so Jesus is not welcomed. And yet God finds a way and the child is born. I like how Scott says this, the story of Jesus' incarnation did not come without complications, but God provided a room, a different kind of room. And he says this about us as well, that the giver of your coming to life will provide a room for you too. And it may not be the one you imagined or the one that pleases everyone, and it may leave you uninvited to your own family reunion, but it's the incarnation that you've been given, and it comes with good news of great joy and so the first word this morning is this, that in spite of the rejection by those that should have received, God made a space and made a space out of an unexpected space and made room for Jesus to become real and become into this creation as fully human. And he wants to do the same thing in our lives. I could say so much more about that. I think about it has so many applications. The unexpected, that that's where God is at work in the margins. If we were to look today, where does the Holy Spirit work the most? Yes, he works in the gathering of the church, the people. But remember, that is not the physical building. It is the people gathered. The room is you and I gathered. Paul says this, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which we have from God, who is not our own, and we are bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God in our bodies because our bodies become the room that Jesus wants to incarnate in and make himself real to others. So let's look at this morning at other big ideas before we, as we transition to the last word, attention. And are you with me this morning? Are you guys awake in the room? I just need to say something so I know you're not dead. Okay, nodding heads. Okay, all right, okay, good. All right. Harry Leong is, he's, he's kind of, I don't know, somebody go throw some water on him. Socially distanced and try not to get it on the soundboard. <laughs> so the big ideas this morning, before we get to the second word, just to recap, and also uh, advise you going forward are these. 
Following the way of Jesus may mean family rejection. In their case, it meant no room. Nobody was willing to make space for them. Nobody was willing to give up their bed. Nobody was willing to allow this young couple, pregnant couple, because of the scandalous nature of it, into their house. And they were not unable to put aside sort of their religious qualms to make space for this happening. So following the way of Jesus in your own life may mean rejection, family rejection. It may mean no room. That is a huge price to pay. And many Christians around the world experience this. And we're seeing it more and more in places like Canada as well, where there's such a one-sided, often ideological ideologies that don't understand how to, to read Christianity through Jesus instead of the accretions of sort of civil or fake Christianity over the years. And so that room, is it there? The other big ideas that we're going to explore today, it may mean leaving the easy parts of religion behind. The easy parts of religion. It may mean understanding that the rules flow out of something deeper, and if those rules are not lined up with ultimate love revealed in God as Jesus, it may mean some of that stuff needs to die in our lives. The other big idea today is it may mean going on a journey to a place you've never been before. We're about to get there. And finally, it means paying attention to both general revelation of God and creation and understanding the creation is not God, but it is a signpost, how N.T. Wright speaks of this, I love, and also the special revelation that takes us all the way into a living, personal relationship with a God who wants to know you personally, not just abstractly as sort of the force or midichlorians, but a real God who is present in the flesh. So let's look at the second passage today from Luke chapter 2. And I warn you, I preached on this three years ago at Pilgrim. And when Josh picked this text, I'm like, oh, goody, goody, goody. I love this text. This is one of my favorite parts that we tell at Christmas time. The wondrous story of the wise men is how I put it some years ago. So here we go. Oh, and I just want to set the stage by telling a silly story before we get into this amazing, wondrous story. There was a little girl who came home from Sunday school. And so she was waving a paper to her mother to say, look, mommy, look, she said. Teacher says I drew the most unusual Christmas picture she ever saw. And her mother took one look and had to agree with the teacher, hoping her daughter could explain her creation. The mother asked, why are all these people riding in the back of an airplane? Well, mommy, that's the flight to Egypt. If you know the story, this is funny. Accepting that, her mother asked another question. Who is this mean-looking man in the front? And her daughter answered quickly and knowingly said, that's Pontius, the pilot. <laughs> Looking at the picture even more closely, the mother said, I see you have Mary and Joseph and the baby, but who is this very large, rotund man sitting behind Mary? Can't you tell the little girl? Asked, beginning to shake her head in disappointment. She said, that's round John Virgin. <laughs> that is like, it's like office humor. It's so painful. It's so, it, it's so bad. It hurts. Uh, and it's funny in a strange way. So as we look at this passage, Matthew chapter 2, let's pay attention to the characters. The little girl, you know, kind of got it. Parts of it sort of not right. But here are the characters in Matthew chapter 2. And keep in mind that the visit of the wise men is probably about two and a half years later. So Jesus is not a baby anymore, even though we often stick, him, stick the wise men or representations of the wise men in the major scene. They actually weren't there at the birth. They were there a bit later. But let's talk about these characters here. Because each of the characters in this account reveals something 
that we need to pay attention to about responding to Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work in creation. Character number one is the Magi or the wise men, also known as the Magi, which is an anglicized version of a word used to talk about them sort of as musicians, musicians, as as magicians rather. I mean, it's close, musician, magician, uh, as magicians. And they're from another religion, uh, Zoroastrianism. They are priests and holy men within that religious system. And so they are the main, one of the main characters besides, obviously, Jesus, the, the, the young toddler himself. The second big person in this narrative is Herod, and Herod is the local ruler, and Herod was the Roman Empire's vassal king, or like their sub-king in the region, and they worked through that like all empires try to do. They try to control states and manipulate them, but if they can keep sort of a facade of local rule going, even though you know they're paying tribute back to the main empire, that's what Herod was. He was that kind of king. But here's the thing about Herod. Herod was the devil they knew versus direct rule by Rome, the devil that they didn't know as well. And so they, were, so they embraced, the religious leaders embraced Herod's rule because it was a known, albeit a crazy, sort of erratic ruler, but they knew him. So this idea of Herod, Herod's, Herod's ruled by fear over the local people. And even in Herod's hard-heartedness, he gives information needed for the wise men to find Jesus, which is fascinating. I like how I believe what Stanley Hauerwas basically says, the enemies of the kingdom of God often inadvertently serve the movement and the message of Jesus. And that happens with Herod. This is dynamite stuff. The third characters in this story are the people in Jerusalem, the people in the ruling city, the main city. Like, how would we in Vancouver think of Jerusalem? We would think of the ruling elites in Ottawa or in maybe Toronto, you know? Uh, sorry, I said that wrong. Toronto, not Toronto. Uh, Toronto, uh, ruling there, the, the religious leaders, the leaders of the people, the political rulers. We also have within the Jerusalem people a subset of the religious elite within the Jerusalem people, and then finally, the child Jesus And then one more character, of course, is you. Where do you fit in this story? And Luke and the gospel writers, the evangelists as they're called, write to ask you to respond. There is a response that is called for for us. So it had been two and a half years since the close of Matthew 1, which we celebrate on Christmas Eve, the birth of Jesus and the events in Luke chapter 2. And now Matthew 2 picks up the story. And again, it is roughly the last year of Herod's uh, up and down reign. By the way, Herod, a little more about Herod, quick character study. He was probably sick and dying of gonorrhea. That gives you a little bit of uh, insight to who he is. And possibly also had cancer. Herod was violent. He killed to protect his power. So this is Herod. This is the local king, the vassal ruler for the empire of Rome. He had the peace and security of the empire. Herod was their poster child, Mr. Gonorrhea and Cancer. And he killed some of his own sons and wife because he was so insecure about his rule. He killed any threats that he felt imagined or real to his power, including his own offspring and his wife. Um, And If he was willing to kill his family, we know he also bumped off many other leaders as well. This is how empires work. One writer reports uh, Augustus, the main ruler of the Roman Empire at the time, Augustus Caesar, the main ruler uh, whom Herod would have served as king under, said this, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Let me say that again. That's the guy that he reports to. It's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Well, what kind of saying is that? Of course, he's ruling over the the Jewish uh, community within the ancient Levant, that section of, of ancient Israel. It's because he killed so many of his own people 
but he maintained an outward appearance of law-keeping, so he wouldn't have had pigs anywhere. So it's better to be sort of out there or he wouldn't have eaten a pig at all to keep that outward appearance of kosherness. Uh, but again, if you were in his own family, watch out. Interesting saying. That's not a compliment coming from your boss. There we go. So let's look at these texts a little deeper today before we end. Matthew 1 and 2. If you're following along in your Bible, just look at those quickly. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the time of King Herod, uh, men from the east came, wise men, saying, where is the one to be born? I like this, uh, this idea here that our characters are introduced. Jesus, Herod, the wise men, and the religious elite in these few texts here. And it's an ancient literary device to set us up for contrast between these characters. Ben Witherington says this, what we can say with a bit more assurance is that Matthew seems to suggest that the wise men showed up a fair bit of time after Jesus was actually born and tells us that when they showed up, uh, you know, again, miscalculated the initial birth of Jesus, and so they show up later. And ever since, we, we live with this, sort of this calendar issue. Hauerwas says this, the wise men confirmed the church's conviction that we should believe God's existence is, in principle, open to rational demonstration. In 1 Corinthians 14.22, Paul says that even those who speak in tongues may be a sign for unbelievers to those who do not know the prophecies made to Israel. That the wise men from the east will find their way to Jesus by the, the shining star, therefore should not be surprising. But it is also in this case that natural knowledge requires narration through the stories that have been given to us in the scriptures. And so natural revelation and specific special revelation work together to bring them to Christ. Craig Keener says this about this story, that this is a miniaturization of the whole gospel. And I love this one. We must share Jesus' gospel to all people because we cannot predict who will hear the message and who will not. Those we least expect to honor Jesus may worship him, and those we least expect to oppose him may seek his death. The tables are turned in this story as well. So as we read this story, you're supposed to identify with the wise men, of course. You're supposed to see them as a model. Herod looks to kill any threat to his power, but the, and the religious elite of Judaism should absolutely care during this time, but they don't. But the Magi, who to put it in anachronistic language, are Iranians, the Iranians show up in the Christmas story here, two and a half years later, the pagan Magi from Iran show up and they come seeking Jesus. This is like mind-blowing kind of stuff. Imagine you're reading this in the first century. Imagine you are coming from either a Jewish or a Greek background and you're reading this. Holy cow, the Persians would be the more ancient language to use, are showing up. The Zoroastrian priests are showing up to this kid. Something is up, clearly. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was alarmed and all Jerusalem with him. So the story builds attention. The people there are, what is going on? This entourage from, anachronistically I'm saying Iran because it's fun. Before the Italians get it, before the Israelites get it, the Iranians are there worshiping Jesus. They show up in Jerusalem and they're like looking for a kid who's going to be a king. And of course, insecure Herod has already bumped off his sons, has bumped off a wife, has bumped off all kinds of local leaders. He is disturbed. And all the local politicians are worked up too because someone's threatening the imperial Roman, quote-unquote, security and peace in the region held by this awful person, Herod. And they're worried as well because what's going to go down? It'll set Herod off. And indeed, Herod, that sly fox, is set off a little bit. And so this scene, imagine these Persian wise men showing up with their entourage. And they assumed probably that the newborn king is going to be in Herod's palace, one of Herod's kids. 
Turns out that's not the case. Herod had ruled by fear, and he used fear to control. And all Jerusalem, we're told, is fearful because they're looking for this king that is to be born, this newborn king. These magi astrologers would have been from the royal court of the king of Persia, ancient Iran. Their job would have been to support and make the king look good. And they would have been truly spiritual men within Zoroastrianism as well. And so it's even more curious that they're coming to promote another king in another kingdom a bit. Many sources of the time tell us that they were skilled in divination and were astrologers. And the stars led them to Jesus. Or rather... God used their spiritual curiosity seeking them to Jesus. I just want to pause for a second. I know we're running out of time, but hang with me. This is good stuff. They were most likely, again, Zoroastrians, which was one of the first monotheistic religions in the world, worshiping a one god, Ahura Mazda. And the Bible condemns divination and, and condemns us using astrology to guide our lives as believers, but they were not yet believers in the one true God revealed in Jesus. They had not met Jesus yet. They had not encountered him yet, but they were seekers of truth within their system. Now think about this in our role in a global society and how Christians should posture ourselves regarding true seekers of truth and revelation, regardless of where they're coming from. Oh, people, this preaches. This is good stuff. The Holy Spirit used the stuff within their religious system to draw them far enough to get to a point where then the Bible could be revealed to them that Jesus and God has made himself personal and known and desires their worship. We shouldn't write anybody off. We should not write people off even in other religious systems. The Holy Spirit may be working. Now, we're not saying that all systems are true. We're not saying that everything within those systems will point to Jesus. But for the authentic seeker of truth, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, drawing and wooing. The hospitality of God is trying to bring everyone to Christ. There's a prejudice being condemned here as well. Outsiders to Christianity who are open to hearing new things, the most pagan of pagans, to use old school language, can respond positively to Jesus if given the opportunity. You, if you're a believer, are that opportunity for someone that you may not expect. You have written them off in your mind. They'll never be open. They're just my good friend who's following this way or that way or the other way. But you don't know what's going on in their heart, but the Holy Spirit might be at work with an authentic seeking of truth and will reveal Jesus to them as the way, the truth, and the life that they have desired and the personalness of God that is not there in other systems. God has revealed his relationship and love in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning because you've sensed the God of the universe reaching out to you. Maybe you're watching and you're not a Christian today. You're not a follower of Jesus. You're not one who has recognized God in Christ is personal and real and can be present right now by his spirit. But it is his spirit that's brought you this far. We want to help you put a name to that. It is Jesus and it is the Holy Spirit of God that is revealing Jesus to you this morning even as you watch this. Your next step today may be like what these magi are about to do in the story, the Zoroastrian wise men from Iran worshiping at the manger. Verses 7 and 8, we talked about Herod's dismayed. We could talk more about Herod. Herod's, Herod, so Herod privately summons them. So interestingly, they need the special revelation of the scripture. The Bible still points people to Jesus, pointed them to Jesus, the Old Testament, to get them all the way to where Jesus actually could be re re revealed personally. So general revelation led them to special revelation, 
which wasn't even their holy book. They didn't even believe it was a holy book, but they took enough faith in what they were given to take the next steps based on what the scriptures taught them within Israel and Judaism to draw them to Jesus. Think about that, that the Bible has power in this other religious system that they didn't even believe in the power of scripture. That talks about the authority and the wonderfulness of scripture. This book is more subversive and more crazy than the lefties and the fundamentalists want to give it. This thing is amazing, and the Holy Spirit pours forth and uses this. Uh, I think Martin Luther said, the Bible has hands and feet. It runs after me. It seeks to grab me. And that's what's happening to these Zoroastrians, Rastrians rather. They're being grabbed by scripture to bring them to Jesus. Then Herod privately summoned the wise men, determined from them where the star had appeared. And he tells them, okay, it's in Bethlehem. That's what my holy men here are telling me based on our scriptures. It's in this little town, which is not far away from Jerusalem, a few miles down the road, basically, or kilometers, sorry. Forget I'm an immigrant. I've got to translate kilometers. By the way, kilometerage or mileage, personal me- or, or text me later that, you know, your, your, your thoughts on that. Okay. So he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, by the way, tell me where you find him. And these guys apparently were pretty naive, didn't know Herod's history there. Anyone else who knew Herod knew he's not coming to worship him. If he gets the information, he's coming to kill him. And in fact, the next part of this very chapter, Herod uh, does a massive slaughter of all of the small children from newborns to uh, toddlers within the region. It's called the slaughter of the holder martyrdom or the slaughter of the holy innocents because Herod tries to kill everyone. That is how deranged this guy is. So he's like, "Let let me know. Let me know where you find him. I'll come and worship him too. Yeah, not so much. So anyway... Moving on with this. So they went and the star again guided them. Oh, by the way, there's lots of discussion about the nature of this star. Was the star um, an astrological phenomenon that was real real and historical or was it an actual special uh, heavenly body or angel or something that God arranged? I don't have time to get into all the debates on that. Yes, there's my answer um, about the star. So anyway, so Herod's role in the narrative should not be overlooked. Herod again directs them to where they need to go. And again, Hauerwas, the enemies of the kingdom of God often serve the movement begun in Jesus. I have hope when the church tries to get co-opted by the powers of our politicians here or abroad. I have hope that even when they intend to crush what they intend to crush, the Holy Spirit can use to draw others to Jesus and eventually will even overthrow those empires that preaches to. We don't talk about Rome as a living empire anymore, but we do talk about Jesus alive and here. One more thing within this before we get to the last few verses. The Magi come to worship Jesus, and they offer gifts that were standard gifts from the East at this time, frankincense and myrrh and gold. Royal courts used frankincense and myrrh, and of course, gold is money, still is money. And some traditions link these gifts with kingly gift as gold and frankincense used only for worship of God in Israel and myrrh that was used for burial. So you see this gold reflecting the king and the frankincense reflecting this worship of God and this myrrh used in the burial of the sacrifice that is to come. That might be a bit of a stretch, but that's one way to understand that. And their journey also connects to the coming of the nations in Psalm 72, verse 10, and Isaiah 60, verse 6, and the queen of Sheba's visit to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, that this idea that God has desired to use this lowly, humble people of Israel to raise up deliverance for all of us, everywhere, all time, backward and forward, and it's revealed in this part of the Christmas story. In this passage, Matthew repeats in verse 2 and verse 8 and verse 11 that they have come to pay homage. They have come to worship 
Former pagans will come to honor and worship God revealed personally in Jesus. There's a hint here that this is more than human honor, by the way. More than high respect. These Persians, these Iranians, Zoroastrians may be worshiping him as something of God. In fact, their conversion to Jesus as God revealed personally and Lord may have started here. And if that is the case, we have the first non-Jewish converts to Jesus in the Persian Zoroastrian Magi. The first Gentiles to worship Jesus are the Iranians. <laughs> Think about that. I love because scripture and early church history blast these narratives that we hear sometimes from our leftists that say, Christianity is only this kind of person religion or that kind of person faith, which is usually a bunch of lies and historical nonsense. Get to know your history. Dig deeper. As C.S. Lewis said, what do they teach people in schools these days? No offense to teachers in my church. I don't want the hate email. I love you. I know you are amazing people. But we need to learn our own, we need to learn our own Christian, our own history. The first Gentile worshipers are from what we would call Iran today in that whole area and stretching even further into the east. And you read in the Bible, you see people coming from Africa. You see people coming from southern Europe. Man, way before it ever reaches northern Europe, you know there were missionaries that were all the way into what we would call China and the countries right before there. We need to learn our own history. This has been global from day one, baby. God desires people everywhere to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and life changer. We got to read our own history and learn it because we're not getting it from the politicians here in North America, people. We're not getting it here. You need to learn it. Okay, that's a total geek out side note. Learn the stuff. It's amazing, and it will give you faith and encouragement and challenge you to be a new humanity in Jesus. Somebody ought to say amen. All right. Finally, okay. Land the plane, chill. Land the plane. Woo, look at the time. All right. After being warned in a dream, verse 12. So God warns the Magi because they probably didn't realize Herod's whole history. They didn't care about Herod. He was a little low-level leader in terms of the pantheon of empires at this time. He was a vassal king of the Roman Empire of Augustus over there in Rome. He was a little guy in, this, in the whole thing, even though he acted like he was, he was like big man over the area and reigned through terror, whatever. The king of Persia considered himself the king of kings, by the way. And so Herod, they, you know, they wouldn't have known, probably known all this. So God warns them in a dream. God intervenes again. Not only did he intervene in the star and their honest search of truth back in the homeland and in the royal palaces and in the wonderful academies and all of the things that they would have been doing back in Persia, but now God comes to them again and warns them, do not go back to Herod. Go home another way. Herod is a disaster. So God protects again the birthing of Christ. The Spirit of God protects. They go home by another route. By the way, we might call this, as one author puts it, strategic withdrawal. There's a time to pick your battles and your fights, right? There's a time to be sensitive to when should we push in and when should we withdraw to let the Lord continue to work. And so they listen and they withdraw. I like how the Holy Spirit, we read Paul and the early missionaries wanted to go into a certain part of, of uh, modern day, I think it was Turkey, and, uh, and the Lord tells them, no, no, you need to go this direction. God knows where the gospel is more receptive. He knows where people are at. He can discern the hearts and the probabilities. He knows all that stuff. And so again, they are given wisdom about don't return this way. It will not be received in the way that will be helpful for the message of the kingdom to be spread. God was not done with them. Their openness to truth beyond what they knew in Zoroastrianism 
Now they know they must go home another way. Literally, they must not go by the way of the murderous and shrewd Herod. Spiritually, then, they've encountered Jesus, and the worship of Jesus will change them. It will change their trajectory. And I'm just blown away. I'm blown away by this, this journey that they undergo, and how God used something so unexpected and gives, them, and gives the kingdom allies in unexpected places. And so as we are working for Christ in Vancouver, we want to have a, a generousness and openness about us regarding all the people in our lives. Because we don't know what's going on in their heart and what the Holy Spirit is doing in the pursuits that they have. We don't know what someone is whispering in the dark hours of their lives to the unknown and yet the Holy Spirit is there listening. We don't know where God is at work, and so we need to be, um, as, as the parable Jesus tells, we need to be willing to scatter seed everywhere and see where the Lord is at work and see what springs up. We risk outrageously for the kingdom. We should not prejudge those outside the church as not being appropriate people to share Jesus with because Jesus is for any and all who will receive him. So let me wrap this with just final, sort of final word this morning. Pay attention! As Scott Erickson says, pay attention. They were paying attention. General revelation and special revelation come together in this story. There is power in both. Be aware as well, final word, fear is often the response. Fear is the response of Herod and the religious leaders in Jerusalem who should have been most open to, to the Messiah, should have been most open, and there's indifference there because they're so locked in their ways of thinking within the empire. The empire has closed down their creativity, has closed down their imagination. They have forgotten the words of the prophets. They have forgotten the hope of the prophets of ancient Israel. They've closed down, but the prophets from another religion, the Magi's response is joy and open where are you at with Jesus do you know he's the wisdom of God of all the ages or is fear paralyzing you come on somebody <laughs> have you written off your Sikh Muslim Jewish secular neighbors that's a huge mistake whether it is the search of truth and general revelation from your most atheist, faith-filled atheists of friends who is saying, oh, truth is out there, truth is out there, truth is out there, and God is starting to speak to them, and they're beginning to put together issues regarding probability and science and creation. The Holy Spirit is at work in the natural order as well. There is a logic as well that God uses. To your friend who's seeking truth through revealed wisdom and other religions, you uh, understand they can't all be exactly the same level of truthfulness, but the search for truth God is working in as well. Are you there to help link them and provide some of that special revelation through the Holy Spirit of God's word in their lives? Last two final words. God condescends to meet us where we're at, but not to leave us there. He met the Zoroastrian priests where they were at, but they did not leave them there. If this is how God works to draw people to Jesus, that means our tone and words should change towards those who are far from Jesus. The church should not have a railing, judgmental, nasty posture towards anyone. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, on and on. And maybe finally this morning, you're here and you're responding to the general revelation, and I want to connect you with the specific special revelation of Jesus. 
a pastor and theologian, spiritual theologian of beloved memory, quoting from an ancient poem, or not an ancient poem, a modern poem actually, said this, Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in his eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men and women's faces. Christ plays in 10,000 places. The Magi encountered that Christ. Maybe you're encountering that Christ this Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence here. And the wondrous story of the Magi paying attention During this Christmas season, I pray, Lord, that those that have been responding to your draw in creation would see a next step, and that step towards finding you revealed in Christ, in the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And God, for those of us in the church that we would also learn from the Zoroastrians, that we would learn that you are at work in this world. Amos Young speaks of this idea of the hospitality, even in interreligious dialogue, that we can come with people who are secure in who you are, and we can engage, and in some cases, some of those people are ready to receive Jesus. Lord, stretch us out of our comfort zone. God, stretch us. Let us not be like the religious elites in Jerusalem at that time. Let us not be like the Herods, more concerned about assuaging and appeasing the empire to hang on to this little broken way of being that he had. Lord, may we be those that become and learn from these first Gentile converts. We learn from their model of what it means to follow you. So Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this church and in our lives. And may we receive joyfully those that you are bringing into the kingdom, and may we help them take those next steps in you. In Jesus' name, amen.